You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is the number we always play when people ask us to play more because we know that after we play this, they couldn't possibly ever want to hear us again. We were loud, we were coarse, and we were strange. He had so much talent, it defied everything. You insist on very high and exacting standards. I think if you shoot any lower than that, you're going to wind up with something sleazy. Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. He was just writing all the time. He wouldn't stop. He heard things a particular way, and then he tried to manifest them in the world. Each show was like a composition. was considered the Pied Piper of Laurel Canyon. Any kind of rock star, especially the British guys who came to town, wanted to meet Frank. I haven't heard anything like it before or since. Frank embodied everything. You couldn't say, oh yeah, that's rock and roll, because it wasn't. It's jazz. No, it's pop music. No. Well, what the hell is it? It's Zappa. Hey there, people, I'm Bobby Brown. The Parents Music Resource Center wants a labeling system. Frank became the go-to person because nobody else in the record industry showed up. And my name is Bobby Brown. We live in a country where we're supposed to be free. We supposedly have democracy here. What do we do? Sit around and go, mm. He was on a mission, and he was going to accomplish that mission no matter what. I am in the process to see if it's possible for me to run for president in the United States. It's time for a revolution. At every point in his life, he was trying to do the best thing that he could to have no regrets. Don't waste your time. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your central scrutinizer, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Skiz Sizzik. Is that a real poncho or is that a Sears poncho? Also back in the booth is Mr. Yaniv Edelstein. Nobody looks good in brown lipstick. On this special episode, we are looking at the latest documentary from director Alex Winter, Zappa. It's a two-hour-plus look at the composer, musician, artist, singer, agent provocateur, Frank Zappa. We'll be discussing what was in the documentary and maybe a bit about what wasn't. I'm not sure if it's possible to spoil the film, but if you are sensitive to that kind of thing, turn off this podcast and come back after you've seen it. Rather than asking when was the first time you guys saw this movie, because this is brand new, I want to know, Skiz and Yaniv, what is your history with Zappa? Skiz, how about you? I grew up in a neighborhood where there weren't many other kids to play with, and uh, the kids next door were older. They were bad influences. They had everything that my parents didn't want my brother and I to have, like uh, mini bikes, BB guns, dogs, porn mags, 
bongs and rock records. One day, probably about 1974, so I was like seven or eight, they played me Frank Zappa's Apostrophe album, and my little mind was blown. I mean, for one thing, when you're that age and you hear, watch out where the Huskies go and don't you eat that yellow snow, you're going to think that's hilarious. And I did. The funny lyrics got my attention, but the music, I just couldn't believe humans were capable of thinking of this music and then performing it. And I fell in love with that album. I started collecting Zappa albums at that point. I think the next one I got was Overnight Sensation, which, you know, my preteen mind knew those songs were dirty, but didn't understand exactly what they were about. (laughs) But dirty meant funny. So I was on board and I just kept buying Zappa albums and Zappa albums and, you know, was a fan, I don't know, for years, I guess, into high school and college when I realized I didn't really like other Zappa fans that much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you guys get along. (laughs) By that point, I was punk rock, so I didn't like anybody that much. I still remember the day that he died. I was uh, working at a radio station and it came over the AP wires and it just said, the headline said, Zappa, obit. And I still, I feel terrible thinking this, but I still remember thinking, let it be anybody in the family but Frank. And, you know, when I read read the article and it was Frank, I, you know, my heart sank and I, I called a buddy of mine that I knew was a Frank Zappa fan. I'm like, you're not going to believe the news that just came over the wire. I haven't been a uh, fanatic collector. I haven't been a completist, but uh, I've definitely been an admirer of him. I think I'm as much an admirer of his brain and his thinking as I am of his music, maybe even more, more so because, uh, you know, I, I downloaded some torrents of all of his, of a bunch of TV appearances and just watched interviews with him and thought he's probably one of the smartest people that ever lived. And I don't know that society has ever recognized him for that. I grew up into, I was born into Zappa. I was, I, I, I was born in a house with three older siblings who were complete and utter Zappa heads were all you know teenagers when i was a little kid they all were 10 years plus ahead of me so i was born into a house with all sorts of inappropriate bad influences like skiz said uh including zappa uh and all three of my older brothers to this day can quote you full not just lyrics but you know thrown away bits of dialogue that frank does during live shows you know when one of those live albums uh, a dance contest, uh, things that people said that he brought up from from, uh, from the audience to come on stage. But basically, my entire life, like it's not something you want to show to little kids. But there you go. Again, I was I was born in '78, so obviously pre-internet, and I lived in a country, a faraway country, with one TV channel. And it's the kind of thing where, like, uh, records in general, but like you know, the weird record, the dangerous record that's. You know, it's too dangerous for, for normies. It's this weird music. The older teenagers maybe listen to or something like that. So a lot about Zappa is his influence between behind the Iron Curtain, for instance, which is what opens this movie. And uh, I think all over the world, Frank Zappa records were a signifier of some kind of weird, dangerous freedom, even not in a totalitarian country. It was this weird message, like, from this bizarre brain who lives in America and and... I don't know, it's so completely out there. I didn't realize how much I had familiarity with Zappa until I was watching the documentary and going, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Like, especially in the 80s and 90s, like those kind of things where it was just like, okay, yeah, I remember the 
the whole Tipper Gore thing with the labeling of the albums and stuff. I remember when Valley Girl was big and uh, a hit single going around. I remember, I want to say Dweezil might have been a co a presenter, a VJ on MTV for a while. So there were like little islands that I was familiar with. And then, of course, I was familiar with uh, The World's Greatest Sinner and, you know, the music in that, which is fucking fantastic. I had a friend... Well, he's still a friend, but I had a friend who I would hang out with. Uh, he was a video editor. I was working with him, and he was a huge Zappa fan. So he would tell me these stories like they were lore, you know, coming down from the mountain, telling me about the Black Page and about how crazy this was. He would play different things for me, like Joe's Garage and um, just like different snippets so that I could kind of get more of a feel of who Zappa was. But... I am coming to this episode fully transparent for all the listeners. I am not necessarily a Zappa head, so going into this documentary, I have to say, you know, I, I had just this passing knowledge. So I'm very curious of our different interactions with this film to say, because a lot of times I'll watch stuff and I'll be like, well, I know pretty much everything about this subject, and uh, you missed this, this, and this, and uh, this was presented incorrectly, but here I am coming into this going, okay, whatever you're serving up to me, I'm going to eat. So I enjoyed this meal of a film, and I'm curious about you guys. What did you think of Zappa the documentary? Mike, I think you're the most interesting one of the three of us because you came to it relatively clean, and you can tell us how it works as a piece of entertainment and if it held your interest and um, that kind of stuff. 100% it held my interest. I was there for the whole darn thing. He starts at the near the end. He goes back to the beginning, takes us through Zappa's life, really focuses on the music. Uh, I, I mean, I also full transparency. Um, you know, I like Alex Winter a lot. Uh, when Kickstarter came out with this, or he put out the Kickstarter for, uh, at the time it was called Who the Fuck is Frank Zappa? I gave my money and I've been following the progress of this the whole way through because knowing, not knowing about Zap, I was like, sure. Yeah. Give me a documentary about this. I'm the guy that complains all the time when I see a biopic, like when man in the moon came out, I'm like, man, I'd much rather just see a really good documentary about Andy Kaufman rather than this Pavlum you're serving me. So to see, a really, to me, this is a really good documentary about Frank Zappa because it told me a story, and I think I know a lot more about Zappa now than when I went into it. Right. I think for Zappa heads like me and Skiz, possibly, the part that really gave us new stuff that we've never seen, we'd never seen, was the part at the beginning with uh, just Zappa's early childhood and his home movies and movies that he edited at home. I think no, nobody's ever seen those before. Uh, unless I'm mistaken. And uh, he did crazy stuff as a kid, like splice flying saucer footage into his parents' wedding film. <laughs> so you, you get a little glimpse of what kind of a kid he was, which informs what kind of an adult he was later. Breaking norms, trying to shock people, trying to annoy people and to provoke response from people. The fact that his dad worked at a, at a chemical at a chemical bioweapon factory, basically, which is part of the reason he got into explosives as a little kid and stink bombs and other things and tried, according to him in his movie, tried to burn down his high school. Uh, so th that's a great glimpse to have. And, and a great decision by Winter is to start there and then throughout the film edit in good, you know, sequences of uh, cheap 
cheap monster movies, Godzilla and stuff like that. Uh, Frank Zappa has a song called Cheapness, uh, Mike, which is quintessential song about cheap 50s horror movies with a visible nylon string attached to the jaw of the giant spider, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that was a great decision, I think, by, by Winter. That's one of my favorite Zappa songs, actually. And, I, and I, when I came up in the film, you know, to see the video footage of the live album that it comes from, uh, which I realize that's been released since then. But, but whenever I see that, it's like I never thought that I would see footage of that all those years listening to that record. And that song is just – it still cracks me up every time I hear it. And I was, I was browsing the, the real Frank Zappa book uh, in preparation for t- today and uh, found out that Grunabulax is actually the, uh, the, the family dog. Like Moon and Dweezil, I guess, brought home a dog and it was Frank's job to name it. Yeah, this is the kind. See, and I know that too. See, this is the kind of depth of knowledge that crazy Zappa heads have. Why do I know that he had a dog called Fruny or Frunobulax? I know it for for some reason. It was interesting to see or to not see the kids because the, I'm more familiar being a a, uh, a fan of like uh, uh, the Running Man. You know, of course, I, I'm familiar with Dweezil Zappa's uh, filmography, and I was familiar with uh, Moon Unit and and a little bit with Ahmet, and then there's like Diva, and they are not really there. But then it's interesting that that becomes the point of the documentary was how much he wasn't there for them. So I thought it was smart that they kept them out that it wasn't like obligatory we're going to interview the kids now and get their perspective because they, I, I really like that story i mean it broke my heart but i like that story about moon slipping the note under his studio door like introducing herself to him because he was such a stranger to her welcome to my moon base you've all been chosen to be part of my elite moon unit which is divided into two divisions, Moon Unit Alpha and Moon Unit Zappa. Yeah, it's true. It is It is heartbreaking. And, uh, I mean, say what you will about Zappa. He's a guy who didn't really work well with other people, period. And uh, was a little, yeah, sadly, you know, didn't communicate. Uh, he just communicated with the world through music and through sarcasm or whatever you want to, you know, classify it as. It is a bit heartbreaking. It's true. Yeah, I was surprised to uh, hear him say that he doesn't have any friends, that his wife and his kids are his friends, because it seems like a guy that's worked with some of these people for as many years as he did. They have to be friends. Like, (laughs) how can they get along and work together so well? But then for him to say that his wife and his kids are his friends, you would think that his kids would have been more of his life. And as we see in the doc, they really weren't. It's true that throughout his career, I mean, first he formed the Mothers of Invention, and maybe people who weren't in the know didn't realize, but he was like the leader of the band, and he was the band were following his instructions, and more so later, uh, at some point he disbands the Mothers of Invention and just brings in a new bunch of people, and they're the new Mothers of Invention, without the word new, they're just the Mothers of Invention now. And throughout his life, he hired musicians, auditioned them, hired them, and he needed his work ethic was legendary and his demands from his musicians was legendary and he needed to be in charge. He needed, he's one of these guys who had to be in charge of his whole whole thing. And later on in the eighties, he discovers electronic music and he buys a Sinclavier and he says on in the film as well, finally, there's a thing that's a perfect robot that does what I tell it to. And that's what I need. And my, my larger point is that I was worried that maybe the movie would just lionize him and uh, not talk about this more, problematic aspects of his personality and uh they didn't shy away from showing what kind of person 
he also was in his personal life, for better or worse. He's not necessarily a guy you'd like to have a beer with or, or, I mean, I'm sure he was pretty cold to a lot of people around his life, in his life, and that's also expressed in the film. He wasn't a people person. And a lot of his lyrics and stuff as well, I mean, it's social commentary that's mostly about focusing on types of people that he doesn't like and making vicious fun of them. <laughs> so he's saying things that needed to be said a lot of the time, but for sure not giving a shit. I think if there's one thing that typifies what kind of person Frank Zappa was, he was the person who really had no shits to give at all, ever. Yeah, I felt sorry for uh, anybody that had to interview him. I mean, you can see in the film, like he has this disdain for all interviewers and he gives these like one word answers to multiple sentence questions. And it just has this look like that's all you're getting. <laughs> yeah, like what a, what an uncomfortable position to put an interviewer in. I mean, he did give other lots of other interviews where he was softer or more outspoken. He, he was very cold and curt with people who he found to be assholes, which was a lot of people, but not always. About the working relationship, I thought that the interview with Steve Vai was very telling because I knew of some musicians that he had worked with, but I particularly knew about Steve Vai for whatever reason, probably because of my friend from uh, you know my past telling me about their relationship and just how great Vi is. I mean, he's a virtuoso, so he's perfect to work with Zappa. But then Vi is just like, yeah, we wouldn't go out for a beer afterwards. It felt like it was a very, very strained relationship, even though it was great as far as a working relationship goes, as far as the work that he got out of Vi, let's say. The same way, the, the Ruth Underwood interview, which I was so glad to see because I, I always really admired her. And, and again, as I said, you know, in the 70s, to see a woman percussionist in a band like that was kind of like, wow, what a cool, diverse group this this man has put together. And the talent is amazing. But to hear her stories about how cold he was to her, and yet you could tell like in the end there there was a warmth there. He just wasn't very good at showing it. I mean, that I loved her interview. I loved her. Uh, I forget who the, the drummer is, but you know, them playing that one composition that's you know impossible for most musicians to play. That was fantastic. Stuff was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I love to see Ruth Underwood. And um, exactly, it shows the two sides of, of what a relationship with this guy must have been. Because, like you said, he was cold to her in different parts of his life. But uh, shown very beautifully in the film is how she, you know, she listens to Frank Zappa's music as a student in Juilliard. And it blows her mind to such a degree that she just opened her horizons completely and changed the course of her life. And it's also interesting how she had to sort of sneak into a room where she wasn't supposed to go in Juilliard and play this song from memory on a piano and being evicted from the room. Like, you're not supposed to play that. Like, again, had this theme of how his music just equates with breaking away from norms, breaking away from dictates and stuff, and finding who you are as a person in the case of Ruth Underwood. It shows you. It shows you what, what his music meant to people like on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And in the 60s, where supposedly the 60s was all about let's break with uh, norms and let's be free and all that. But a lot of the music was still really conformist and really fake and manufactured in plastic. And in the 60s, he was the musician's musician. All the wildest people who sought him out and came to him because he was the one who was so out there that the general public has no idea what to do with him. And us musicians, we can sort of slightly, slightly see what he's trying to do here. 
I really respected the, you know, you talked about him planning on blowing up the school and stuff. That's the kind of stuff, you know, I never planned on blowing up the school, but I would have loved to have seen my school blow up. That rebelliousness that he showed, that disdain for authority that he showed, that really drew me to him as far as like watching this doc. I was like, okay, I can really relate to this guy because of just the social norms and constructs that you're talking about, like growing up in the fifties and sixties and just him pushing those boundaries. And when he gets set up to be thrown in jail and to have his studio taken apart just because he's different, I really felt for him in that moment. And then I really respected just how vicious he was when it came to attacking authority figures. You even see some of this other really early stuff. He's in a, he, you know, growing up in this uh, in, in Lancaster, I think, or in the middle of California somewhere, and he's in a band. He's 15 or 16 years old, and he's a drummer in a combo that didn't last very long, and it's mostly black people, which, again, the year he, he was born, 1940, this is the mid-50s. It's basically the birth of rock and roll. Again, even as a teenager, he 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 saw nothing. I'm sure lots of people had racial lines that would have prevented that right there, and, the, and he, he he's, he'll drum with a combo, like... It was funny, too, to see just how graphically he influenced things, like to see his artwork, to see the album covers. I mean, there are album covers that I know the cover, but I don't know the music inside. I mean, the Weasels Rip My Flesh album is one that I always think about the cover of that. Freak Out is a famous album cover. I saw Captain Beefheart in there. I didn't realize that he and Captain Beefheart had a relationship. So to see Trout Mask Replica in there, I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, it makes sense that they were compatriots because they were drinking from the same well. Yeah, they were actually childhood friends. They grew up together. Zappa was my introduction to Beefheart because I bought the, the Bongo Fury album out of a cutout bin, and it was just credited to Zappa Beefheart Mothers. And I didn't didn't know who Beefheart was. I went to the record store and looked up Beefheart and found out, oh, there's all these albums by this guy. And look, this one with the craziest cover was produced by Frank Zappa. So yeah, put him on put Beefheart on my radar. And now I'm a huge Beefheart fan too. So thanks, Frank. The stuff that he produced, like I was recently watching a couple documentaries about Alice Cooper, and I didn't realize that there was that relationship too. So it was nice to see Alice Cooper show up in this one. And I think that nobody knew that Jimi Hendrix was there the day they shot the cover of We're Only In It For The Money. I think, I don't think, I think this movie is the first place anybody's ever heard of that. And there he is in the, in the shoot. That was the selling point for a lot of people. I think when, when Winter was pitching this for Kickstarter was I have access to the Zappa vaults. And who knows what's in these Zappa vaults? And then that you get to see the Zappa vaults. It was just like this gold mine of stuff. I'm, it was probably an embarrassment of riches for Winter to be able to go through here and figure out what he wants to show. And you talked a little bit about the, um, you know, uh, Zappa splicing in flying saucers to his parents' wedding films. That editing style kind of carries through the rest of the film. And, and it's, I can't even, begin to imagine how many cuts are in here because 
not only is it telling the story, but it's also telling it in a, I can't say a fragmented way because it's a pretty linear story, but it's telling it through montage so much of the time. It's got a really nice look to it and just keeps it coming over and over and over again. I'm sure you guys got more out of this than I did as far as like, oh, look at that. I know that thing. I know that, you know, it's because you're talking about, oh, there's live footage of this thing that I've only heard. So there's probably so much more, but for me, it's just, I'm trying to take it in like a sponge. Yeah, I love the way that it worked in the Bruce Bickford animation way earlier in the film before we're even introduced to, to Bruce Bickford. And I, I don't know if a lot of Zappa fans know this or not, but Bruce Bickford, there was a 2004 documentary on him called Monster Road by uh, Brett Ingram and Jim Haverkamp that is fantastic. And it's these two films together are kind of funny because in that film, Zappa is just like a small fraction of Bickford's story. And in this film, Bickford is just a small fraction of Zappa's story. And yet they're both so important to each other. And by the way, if we're talking about the album covers, we've got to mention Cal Schenkel, who's the guy who designed almost all of them. And he's still around and, um, and he's an amazing artist as well. I watched the film twice. I watched it a month ago and then I watched it a couple nights ago. And the first time there was something about how Zappa had proposed a box set and the label didn't want to put it out. So it became four different albums. And I always thought that uh, Studio Tan, Orchestral Favorites, and Sleep Dirt seemed to all come out at the same time, and they looked similar. So I pulled those records out. I don't know the actual story here. I think that the, the label released those without much of Frank's involvement after he just sort of handed them over. But Gary Panter did the artwork for the three of those, and that's something I had never noticed like all these years, I've been a Gary Panther fan, and it, it never crossed my mind to see who who designed those album covers. But it's it's Gary Panther. Well, it's just amazing to see his output. I mean, Frank died when he was fifty two, which is just again kind of heartbreaking that he passed so early. And to look at his discography and see, like, uh, yeah, he released uh, one, two, three, four, five albums in 1979. He released another five albums in 1981. It's just like constantly working, constantly coming out. And then to look at how many posthumous albums, I mean, it's just, I think he's released more albums since he's passed than when he was alive. It was 62 before he died and 53 cents, but he's, he's, he's about to match it, I would imagine. You know, a clue to this is that in the movie, there's a late interview with him when he's already dying. He's already, and the interviewer says, I guess you can't work as much as you used to. And he says, no, on a good day, I can, it's nine to six. It's like nine hours of work on a terrible day when you have cancer. That's him. Cancer has brought me down to just nine hours of work a day. So yeah, he has a, just an unbelievable work ethic. I keep waiting for all of the Prince albums I always heard that he recorded. And it's like, come on, the, they need to do the same thing with Prince that they've done with Frank Zappa, where it's like, okay, there's the, the yeah, going back to the vault, there's the vault of music. Let's see that, because it seems like this vault of Zappa is endless. And I, I wonder how long we're going to get new music from Z from Frank Zappa. In the real Frank Zappa book, which, by the way, those that don't know, it's a book that Zappa wrote. I guess back in the late 80s, it's partially autobiography and mostly manifesto. But he talks about how he uh, recorded all of his concerts. He says something like every third or fourth concert might have something usable in it. <laughs> and I think he's talking about guitar solos that that like, you know, he has all these guitar solos recorded, but really most of them aren't worth hearing 
you know, but if you sift through all of them, you'll eventually find one that's really good that's worth letting the public hear. I can't imagine how many hours and hours and hours of, of and, and this was like multi-track tape. I mean, that stuff was expensive. Well, they've been releasing some of these uncut things. For instance, the Roxy and Elsewhere album that we were talking about earlier. Now you can hear the whole unedited three or four nights in a row. We did three or four nights at the Roxy to record this album, and it's all there with outtakes and everything. They put that out on DVD as well. I just saw it on Apple Music, and I listened to, to, to uh, like five of the nine hours or whatever it is. These are shows that he's doing in order to record them. And some of the time he's directing the band, he's directing the cameras from the stage. And part of the explanation for this is also is this insane run that the mothers had at the Garrick Theater in New York, where he says something like, we played there in the sometime in the late 60s, five shows a week for six months or something like that. And they just honed their theatrical, you know, it wasn't even just the music, they had choreographies and doll's heads and all sorts of things and audience participation. They cut their teeth, you know, they did so much work on stage that he was just, he was so comfortable on stage and just creating things live in front of the audience. Well, we could talk about some of his movies. That, like, did you, were you able to watch 200 Motels? Is that a movie that you tried to watch? I was familiar with 200 Motels from my days at working at Blockbuster, and it had a very intriguing cover, but I never ended up watching it. And then I think I was tempted to watch it, and then I want to say it might have been you, Skiz, who's like, you might not want to spend your time on that. This is the thing with Zappa is that it, you know, so many of these records were – soundtracks you know or music from the movie but as zappa fans we never had any way of seeing these movies i often questioned did they really exist and then when i finally saw like i had the 200 motels album soundtrack for years and i was just like i can't even imagine what this movie looks like and when i finally saw it it was even stranger than i expected it to be and uh it, it's grown on me i actually enjoy it now but i think the first couple times i was like i don't really know if i like this but i do like it now i'm not sure i got past that point myself i still there's like a video effect in there for the song centerville that to this day i'm like I, i'm not sure how they did that but that's i can't even describe the effect but it, it's just such a cool effect and i've never really seen it done it's some kind of video feedback i always want to watch the movie just to see that scene and, and look at that effect Talking about how useful of all of these hundreds of hours of recording, yeah, there might be something a little useful in there. When he is working with the orchestra towards the end of his life, and he's just like, yeah, we were about 70, 75% there. It's like, holy shit, you had so much control and you know, you're, com you're composing it, you're conducting it, you've got this full orchestra that you hired for a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, what was it? The London uh, Symphonic Orchestra, right? There you go. He, and he's like, eh, yeah, we're like 70% of the way there. So I can't even imagine what a taskmaster he must have been to all of those people that he would work with on a regular basis on stage, because these are complicated that was the thing that that got me when um, my friend eric would play music for me it was just like how complicated some of these songs were you know I, I mentioned the black page and for folks who maybe don't know what the black page is i mean it's called the black page because there's so many notes on the page it looks like it's black and that is just wild and to hear the way that he 
puts together the phrasing and w- when the one woman is playing the stuff on the piano and, and there's the drummer there, it's just like, oh my God, I would never think that that note would follow that note. It's just, it's such a, I'm not a musician or I haven't been for many years, so I'm not sure if it's like, you know, what kind of chromatic thing is going on with this, these chords, but it's not something that you would hear on FM radio. I kind of wonder if it was a defense mechanism for him to never feel like anything he did was perfect. You know, it, it's kind of like if there's ever any criticisms to anything that he did, he can say, well, you never really got to hear it the way it was supposed to be. Not that he ever gave a shit what the criticism would be anyway. Right. I mean, that's just a theory. I I, I don't know for sure. So is Baby Snakes worth checking out? I think I have it. I found it in a thrift shop. <laughs> uh yeah, it was a, a lucky find. I, yeah, I think it's a concert film and a whole lot of Bickford animation. I don't remember much more about yeah, it. Yeah, there's another release called Does Humor Belong in Music, which is half uh, or probably mostly live shows and uh, some interviews placed in and stuff. Yeah, that claymation that Bickford was doing, that was remarkable. And I was curious, you talked about how it comes before he shows up in the movie. So it's just like, where is this stuff coming from? What is this stuff that frank did or what is going on so i was glad when they introduced him into the film and and showed that meticulous process of him with those zappa heads and carving each one of them and coming up with the hair and i want to see that bickford documentary now yeah it's great i i uh bickford is as much of a character as frank is maybe even more so i i had a funny story where i brought him to baltimore to talk to animation students at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And uh, somehow while he was in town, he talked, well, he didn't talk me into it. He just sort of announced that I was the producer of his next film. (laughs) (laughs) And I got got really nervous. And I remember I talked to to Jim Haverkamp, who uh, produced the documentary. And I told him, I was like, I I don't know what I've gotten myself into. He's like, don't worry about it. If you don't talk to Bruce for a day, he will forget who it was that's supposed to be producing his next film. Oh, jeez! <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I never heard about it again. I, I stayed in touch with him a little bit after that, but that film was never brought up again. Not that I wouldn't have wanted to have produced it. I just don't know how anybody could. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Alex Winter right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
there's a new podcast on the block. Video Vortex Podcast. Listen in as Bucks, Ben and Steph have a conversational discussion and talk about how much films affect us as people and as a society. Yes, we do all of those things. Along with guests from the industry and beyond. And get sucked into the video vortex. Don't say sucked on a promo. (sighs) We most definitely are making up on the spot. Find us on assorted apps and at videovortex.podbean.com. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to culturecast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios tell me how did the project even begin did you approach the zappa family or did they approach you what was that like i approached them um i was finishing deep web my producer glenn zipper and i were looking at what we wanted to do next and wondering why on god's earth there had not been a comprehensive documentary about the life of Zappa. I was looking to do something that wasn't tech related. I'd been kind of immersed in technology for the previous bunch of years. And and I'd been not only a big fan of Zappa's, but also just felt like he was a fantastic doc subject because he was just such a, a, a paradoxical figure who came up at a very, very interesting period in American history. And so those two things you know, either one of those would make for a good doc and the two of them together could potentially make for a great doc. So I kind of crafted a, not really a sizzle, more of like a visual interpretation of, of, of the direction I wanted to take with with who would become the editor of the film later, uh, Mike Nichols. We worked on that together, and it was sort of an abstract uh, mood piece that kind of explained what I wanted to do, which was not a standard music doc at all, um, but really uh, an examination of an artist in his time, and, and pitched it to Gail. And I honestly... She didn't think she was going to say yes because she didn't say yes to anyone. That was she was notorious for that, and I had huge respect for her, and I was fully uh, prepared to accept her saying no to us too. But she she really liked that approach. Um, just luck of the draw. She'd also seen Deep Web and had really liked Deep Web, and um, we talked about politics and activism for a long time. So uh, I think she liked my approach and how I was coming at at Frank, and so that began a very very long process. That was that was like five and a half years ago. Uh, almost six years ago at this point. What was your relationship like with, with Frank Zappa's music? I mean, when did you first hear it, and, and how did it change you? He's such a complicated fellow. I had kind of multiple experiences with Zappa that formed and and over the years. I first discovered him on SNL um, in the 70s. And, you know, my brother listened to Zappa. He's a musician, and there were people, I'm older brother, people around us playing Zappa. So I knew who he was musically in that way, like from the kind of standard rock classic way. But on SNL, I kind of pricked up my ears and thought, oh, there's more to this person than that. He's, this guy's like more of a cultural icon, like a Richard Pryor or a Carlin or something. He's like 
politically aware and he's funny and he's, he's erudite and he's, his music is actually, it's, it's, it's beyond, you know, being rock. It's, it's kind of its own thing. But I really got Zappo well after college and Hot Rats was, was my way in. And then I realized how much more there was to him that he wasn't really a rock musician at all, but he really was a almost more like an avant-garde classical musician. And that once I, once that clicked for me, I was, I, I really got all of it, but that took time. It did not happen in one. It wasn't like I heard freak out and was like on the train. It was not like that at all. In fact, I think I got through the seventies and, and into the 80s uh, without thinking he was anything more than the guy who made apostrophe. So it was really much later that I that it hit me. You cover his whole life. It must have just been so difficult to try to keep that train on the track without going too far down one alley or another alley just because he had so many different facets to him. Yeah, the thing that really helped us was that from the beginning, even when I pitched to Gail, I, I, did, I never wanted to make a an all-inclusive Zappa story. I never wanted to try to get through every album or make a standard legacy music doc. Uh, I really wanted to tell a story, and in some ways an abstract examination of an artist in his time and the relationship with his art and with the world around him. Because we had a a specific narrative agenda, it it allowed us to focus on that story and, and... wouldn't say weed out because you know if something was really great we would figure out a way to use it but if it was just anecdotal or like a piece of fan service we didn't feel inclined to use it and and you know there's a very famous clip of of a young frank zappa playing the bicycle with a violin bow on the steve allen show and it's the kind of thing everyone would expect to be in this movie and it's not yes i had access to the masters of that and sure we could have shown you a more pristine version of it than has already probably been viewed four million times on youtube but it just wasn't the story we were telling. And that allowed us to, to not tangle with a great deal of media and focus on things that were more about who Zappa was as a person and what his interior life was. We well, already mentioned Mike Nichols, and that was the thing that really struck me about the documentary was just the use of the montage, you know, going from picking up that on that montage stuff of Frank cutting in UFO footage into his parents' wedding videos or wedding film into just the the layers upon layers of stuff that you're doing. I mean, that must have taken forever to put that stuff together. It did. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. Yep. It was really, really painstaking. The thing about Mike uh, and the reason that I wanted him to do this was that, you know, he and I grew up very similarly. We both started making little eight millimeter movies when we were kids and cutting them. And we both were very musical, young, um, not unlike a young Zappa and, and not in any way sharing his brilliance in, 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 the, in the musical regard. But, but I felt he would have an understanding for the way Zappa assembled things, the way he made things. And Mike was great because he's a really good visual editor, but he's a, also a really good sound editor. And there's a difference, and you know, I'm sure you know, there's a big difference between sound editing and sound design. And the sound designer was Lon Bender, who was an Oscar-winning genius, and I've worked with Lon on a few movies, and he's absolutely amazing. But what Mike was doing as he cut the movie was he was creating sound edits out of archival media that didn't actually correspond to the visuals that one would think they were corresponding to. In other words, we were literally building 
the film in an abstract way, not unlike the way Frank made his movies and ultimately the way he made some of his music um, from a mixing standpoint. So that really informed a lot of our creative decisions. You know, we really wanted to convey an essence of who the guy was and to do that in a, in a meaningful way uh, and in a cinematic way. Uh, so that was uh, a real key for us was finding so much of his home movies and seeing the way literally being able to look at the film and seeing literal splices, like how he cut the film, where he cut it. And he did a lot of stuff with single frame intercuts, which I like a lot. I used to make music videos and a lot of my music videos were based on single frame intercuts. So I really responded to Zappa's film style and it was really not unlike my music video style. It was just a coincidence, but I think we may have both been inspired by similar uh, avant-garde filmmakers from the fifties and sixties. So that was an affinity. These were just all things that, that meant something to us and that we, that we played with. What was that like going into those vaults? And it must've been like uh, such a treasure trove of information. It was. I mean, it was certainly intimidating. It was absolutely captivating and wonderful. It was also a game changer in that there was a lot of media that needed to be preserved. And I've talked about this a lot, but we mounted a whole can. It was, we basically had to hit pause on any idea of a movie and just spend the next two years preserving vault material, which is literally what we did day in, day out for a couple of years. And it was an exhaustive process and an expensive process. And we just had to do all of that before we could even get to, to, to thinking about making the film. So, you know, I was very grateful. I was not expecting to be granted access to the vault, but I certainly, you know, was certainly grateful for it. And Gail made it clear to me that she didn't really think I could make the film that I was envisioning without the vault, that, that there just wasn't enough media that was personal out in the world. Um, and that if I really wanted to tell that story, I would, I would need the, to access that, that material. How do you even begin to say this is what's going to be included and this is what's not going to be included? I mean, what was that process of, of kind of drawing those lines for yourself? I worked from a kind of a narrative place of I created a, a, a narrative structure that obviously we were free to change. And then Mike, the importance of an ed- editor is that Mike was doing that on his own. You know, uh, we all had access to the media. So, uh, you know, Mike was working out of his editorial space in my whole office. I had a, a, a setup in my office and we could just pour over media. Mike was building kind of bins with ideas and I was writing out narratives. We just worked together in that way. We, you know, there was there would be times when either he would build something or I'd have an idea that would end up hitting a scrap heap. But I have to say that mostly we were in pretty good lockstep about what serves the story, what doesn't serve the story. What gets us inside Zappa's head? What doesn't? And once we built the spine of the film, then we could season it with fun stuff that we found along the way that we thought would, would, would be additive. But that made it much easier to go, nope, this really doesn't apply. It wasn't a concert film. So that we were immediately like, don't need this, don't need this, don't need this, don't need this. And I'm sure you know the fans would have a heart attack hearing that, but we were just immediately discarding giant swaths of musical performance. You can make a whole documentary just about Frank Zappa's political activism. You talked about how you and Gail had talked about political activism. I know that you know you're very active on, in things. I mean, Frank Zappa's saying these things in the '80s when he's facing you know the Reagan era that are now coming true in the Trump era. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that there's a you know someone could make little. More sort of narrowly, more narrowly focused films about a certain period of his life, 
that really wasn't my interest. I was interested in the in the arc of his emotional journey and what had taken this man from a a vibrantly talented youth through a maturation process that found him. You know, he came at the world in this playful devil may care way in his twenties, and you know, by his forties had donned a suit and was going to Russia and Prague and on Crossfire. Uh, at the expense of his artistic career and 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 his commercial viability, sometimes, and I wanted the I wanted to track that arc. Um, I was interested in I was interested in the, in the epic life of Zappa and not some narrow focused. Here's a rock guy who happened to be an activist story, which I'm sure someone could do a good job with. It just was not my interest. I, I felt like it, it would not allow me to really see what got him there and also where it took him. How did you balance making Zappa? and showbiz kids and starring in a movie all at the same time because thankfully they don't happen at the same time <laughs> <laughs> by any stretch bill and ted did not I, I was picture locked before i left to do bill and ted i mean we were done zapper was completely done i mean we had we had so many done meaning we hadn't mixed or colored yet but we had finished the film there was so much to do with legal clearances for uh, audio and picture that uh, my team worked for, I mean, well down when I got back, my team spent the better part of a year just working on legal clearances. So we basically, Mike and I finished, put our pencils down. I left to do Bill and Ted. They got started on legal clearances. When I got back, they were still working on legal clearances and I was working on showbiz kids. So I basically made showbiz kids while we were clearing legal <laughs> on the archival material for Zappa. Um, showbiz kids was a really fast process for me because, uh, uh, it was a film I tried to get made about 10 years ago. So I had the whole kind of structure already laid out in my head. And once I was able to get secure those subjects, it's a very intimate film with a very small ensemble and Wes Cadwell, who cut Panama papers with me, um, who's really good and really fast. We were able to make that film quite quickly and it actually got released much more quickly than we thought it was going to because of COVID. It was originally not to come out until around now, but they kind of hurried us up when COVID hit. It's been a crazy year. I, I will give you that. So are you working on one, two, or three or more films right now? No. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's, it, it's all hands on deck. The, these films took, took us a lot of time to make. You know, I wish that this was my normal production rate. I mean, I'd be dead, but uh, it'd be lovely if I was, you know, Every year, here's another three movies. Uh, no, that is not going to happen. This is the result of like a, over 10 years of work. So we're very, very busy on rollout. I was very busy on Showbiz Kids rollout. There was a lot to do, uh, an enormous amount of work to do on Bill and Ted. I and mean, we're a little bitty movie. We are very hands-on producers. So we've been all day, every day doing work on the Bill and Ted rollout with, with Alex Leibovici, the financier, and Orion MGM, and, and then our gang, you know, Dean and Ed and... Scott. So there's just been a ton of labor on, on getting that film out properly. And then along came Zappa. So yes, I'm developing the, you know, Troopers next projects right now, the docs that we'll do uh, next year. And we're working on that, but I'm not in production and we're in full basically development mode and distribution mode at the moment. And that's like got us way more than at capacity. 
Well, Alex, it is always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and and just slicing me out this little bit. Because, I I mean, when Bill and Ted hit, you were hustling like a mofo. I was seeing you pop up all over the place. Your Twitter's blowing up just with like, hey, this is coming. This is happening. Doing all these like live streamings and all this kind of stuff. As if 2020 couldn't be crazy <laughs> enough. I know. It's been nuts. It's been a crazy year. Look, the only thing that's been that's made it easier with COVID is that because everything is done from Zoom or phone, it's like at least I haven't been like literally having to travel all over the world releasing three movies. I think I would actually be physically dead. Before COVID hit, I looked at my calendar and between the Zappa Festival ro- rollout, which is I was literally traveling all over the world through New Year and Bill and Ted and the Junkets and Showbiz Kids. I was like, I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to physically pull this off. And then suddenly it all was just like, what Zoom am I on? <laughs> right. Oh, God. <laughs> <You know>? So <laughs> in a way, it made it possible. But I sure as hell wish that wasn't the circumstances. Well, hey, if you ever want to come back on the show, talk about movies or anything, I'd be happy to have you. I know that you're too busy right now. But, you know, if the day comes, just give me a shout. Yeah, I will. I will for sure. And I really, really appreciate it. I always love coming on this. All right, we are back and we are talking about Zappa. So, like I said, as a Zappa noob, this film scratched an itch for me. I feel that I know a lot about Zappa, but I'm curious with you guys being Zappa heads, what are some of the things that maybe you would have liked to have seen more, especially had you had access to these vaults that Winter did? When I heard Winter was making this, I was both envious because he had access to so much material. And then I also felt sorry for him because I knew that there's no way he can put everything in a feature length film. It would have to be a mini series or something. So I was trying not to think about the things that were missing, but there were a couple things, two things in particular that I I thought were sort of important that I guess aren't that important because they were left out and it doesn't make much difference. But I was surprised that there was no mention of the uh, concert in Switzerland uh, that's become famous because of smoke on the water. Did you know that, Mike? I remember the lyric and I was thinking at one point, Frank Zappa and the mothers. Da, da, yeah, da, it's da, an da. actual fire. The ex- they actually saw the actual smoke on the water in, in Lake Geneva or whatever it was. I guess that story is kind of overshadowed because it's a week later when he's pushed off the stage and ends up in a wheelchair for a year. The other story that I thought was interesting that it was left out, and, I, and it could be because maybe the family doesn't want it uh, mentioned, is that he had a wife before Gail, like his first wife. When they divorced, it was because of the divorce, he didn't have anywhere to stay. And that's why he moved into the studio, the Studio Z, you know, which we know from the film is uh, raided and he's thrown in jail. And then another, de- another detail coming out of that is that because of that jail time, uh, he wasn't eligible for the draft. But he did have a draft card that he, he had Lenny Bruce try to autograph when uh, Mother's open for Lenny Bruce. That's, that's a story that's also in the real Frank Zappa book. 
some of the stuff that was touched on, but I felt not enough was, was all of his activism in the eighties. Cause Frank was a guy who was really ahead of his time and he's been dead for 30 years. And a lot of his stuff is still ahead of his time. Even now, not as not, not talking about the music right now, but about his social commentary and his persona and his, you know, the general messages that he tried to put out into the world. And a lot of his stuff is so much more relevant today in, in an America where the president is Donald Trump. His whole activism, you know, he did, he wasn't an activist the whole time, but he was sort of pushed to the front of the stage in the eighties to fight, uh, you know, this initiative with Tipper Gore and, uh, the PMRC and putting labels on, uh, on satanic music like Prince and, uh, Judas Priest or whatever it was. You could just feel how, you know, he was neither a Democrat nor Republican, but you could tell how specifically Republicans got under his skin and a lot of his stuff, even in his albums in the eighties, is anti-Republicans, anti-Reagan, anti-televangelists, which were becoming so so popular. A lot of his criticisms of Reagan, for instance, are unbelievably pertinent and relevant to Donald Trump. The movie even sets this up a little bit because it shows us, it starts to show us Ronald Reagan becoming governor in California, and then Donald Reagan announcing his run for president in, in 80, and then it just stops. It doesn't go anywhere. I was very That, that part was weird to me. Uh, it, it just sort of maybe assumes that you, the viewer, know who Reagan was, remember who Reagan was and what the Reagan years were like, but it doesn't go into that. And also the, the, the Senate uh, hearings, the PMRC hearings, the movie sort of boils them down a little bit to they wanted a label. Frank offered uh, that the lyrics should be printed on the outside of the album. And finally, they, did, they went with the label, which is like a Cliff's Notes of the Cliff's Notes, because Frank really, really was like a crusader for free speech, if anything, in that area, this era specifically. He, it was him, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister and John Denver, for some reason, went and testified. And if you go back and watch some of those hearings, I mean, they're pretty amazing and they're pretty incredible entertainment. Some of the stuff Frank has to say to these people, to their faces. And I think that was a bit of a missed opportunity because, again, if you go back and watch some of Frank's interviews from the 80s, it's like he's predicting, oh, another thing, this clip, that a little part of it is in the movie, this crossfire clip where he tells tells this other guy to eat shit. Alex Winter chose this part where he tells the guy to eat shit, but if you watch the entire clip, there's a, an amazing part in there where Frank Zappa talks about the danger to, I, I guess they're trying to frame it as, these lyrics and this obscene music is a danger to the youth of America. And, and Frank's answer is, the real danger for America is this very real danger of uh, having a fascistic theocracy which is what the Republicans are leading us into. And he breaks it down, and it just sounds like Trump's America. I mean, well, exactly. I mean you're, not, you're not really serious if, if you're saying we're going toward a fascist theocracy. <laughs> That's right, we are. Wait a minute. And what way? When you have a government that prefers a certain moral code mm-hmm. derived from a certain religion, and that moral code turns into legislation mm-hmm. to suit I'm, one what, certain what, religious what point of view, and if that code right. happens to be very, very right-wing, almost toward well, until the Hun... Well, then you are an anarchist. Every form of civil government is based on some kind of morality, Frank. Morality in terms of behavior, not well, of in course. terms of theology. Just picking the, the one part where he says, tell somebody to go eat shit. I mean, yes, it's also irrelevant, but it's, it's a missed opportunity. One of my favorite things Zappa said about the, the lyrics is that, uh, you know, if this idea that these, the content of these lyrics has any influence on anybody, then everybody should be in love because we've heard thousands of love songs 
And I just thought thought that was such a great point. And it's always been one of my favorite things that, that Zappa has ever said. I've actually, the you know, the whole past four years, I have frequently thought about what would Frank Zappa be doing now if he were still alive in the age of Trump? Like, how would he be reacting to this? I would love to see what he would have come up with and in the interviews that he would be giving because you can imagine yeah, how angry he was back in the 80s. Like, he would be furious now. Yeah, even if you watch it, again, some of those old interviews, they're so unbelievably relevant. And maybe they're even too dangerous to put in a documentary today. I don't know, maybe Alex Winter can tell you, but he was he was very outspoken against not just televangelists, but churches in general, religion in general, and the fact that churches don't pay taxes. And he says, in, you know, in live performances, there's a song where he pauses in the middle and says, tax the churches. A lot of the time he has specific messages that he, that are like political issues that he wants his audience to take up. Tax the church is very simple. Then he says it more wittily when he says, you know, there's a big difference between kneeling down and bending over. A lot of this stuff, and I think in, t- in today's America, you know, you, 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 you guys are over there, but maybe it's too toxic or too sort of dangerous to put even in a documentary today. I don't know. Or maybe he'd be seen as less sympathetic. Uh, but he, he gave no shits. He told everybody exactly what he thought about religion and about the specific brand of religion that's successful in America. I was disheartened when I heard about how petty the politicians were when it came to uh, Zappa being kind of an ambassador to Czechoslovakia after the Velvet Revolution. I was just like, wow, I had no idea that like he and Václav Havel were buddies and that this was going on. And then that the government was just like, if Zappa's got anything to do with this, fuck you. And it was like, wow, one man can stop you from reaching out to this new country that has shrugged off the yoke of communism, like the American dream of taking down communism. Here it is, a bloodless coup, and you are going to be that fucking petty about shit? That's the way shit works. <laughs> Fast forward to 2018, and uh, Donald Trump, the Republican president, is buddy-buddy with a communist dictator of North Korea, and nobody cares. And you were talking about televangelists. It's like, I had no idea that televangelists were still kind of a thing until fucking Kenneth Copeland shows up on my uh, Twitter feed the other day with his whole reaction to Biden winning the election. The media said Joe Biden's president. Ha 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 That motherfucker's still alive and still has a pulpit. This is yeah. Pat Robertson is still on the Seven Hundred Club today. He's ninety-eight, ninety-nine years old. He's still doing it. I saw a video of him from two weeks ago saying that God has ordained that Trump is going to be reelected. So <laughs> that part of of Frank's political struggle was not successful yet in America. American public opinion moved enough because I don't think I think in the eighties American public was willing to accept Ronald Reagan as a real president, as a real respectable person, and not as a stooge in an act. Look, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to alienate the audience who maybe respects American presidents. I think if somehow Donald Trump was elected president in the 80s, he would just be respected. You wouldn't have major media outlets saying it's wrong to... They'd just be respecting him. They'd be saying it's wrong to criticize him. So I think the needle moved enough that a big portion of the American public sees through bullshit a little better, but not nowhere near enough still. We forget how lionized Ronald Reagan 
was and is. You know, when he passed away a few years ago, it was just like, oh, he was one of the greatest American presidents. Like, really? He kind of fucked the country and we're still dealing with a lot of stuff that he did. I mean, the whole, you know, fairness doctrine. It's like, okay, that's why things like Breitbart and, you know, Fox News exist is because there is no fairness doctrine anymore. But then people still cling to that and they're just like, wow, how dare you criticize the president? You know, you should give him equal time. It's like, there is no equal time anymore, guys. Sorry, this is, we're, we're post-Reagan now. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I wish I had a comeback or anything, but yeah. Yeah, I know my mind's going in so many directions right now. I'm like, no, nah, stay focused on Zappa. Stay focused on Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Winter did put in the movie this one part where, he said, where the lyric goes, what they do in Washington is just look out for number one, and number one ain't you. You ain't even number two. Which is, if anything, uh, survive the test of time, it's that. It is so ironic that the song that I knew Zappa from the most is Valley Girl, and just that that's like the one that, that crosses over and becomes the big hit. Because the guy has done thousands upon tens of thousands of, of songs and here's the one that actually makes it through to the other side which is basically like something you would hear on dr demento this one story that wasn't in the movie which i, I wish what would have been was that this other song bobby brown goes down it became a huge hit in germany and in europe and it's a song with lyrics that it could never be played in the u.s and it became a, a hit with people who didn't understand english and didn't know what the lyrics were about but it's a song full of unbelievable sexual and, and sexual and sadomist masochistic acts that could never even be played in American on American radio. And that was his other big hit, but not in the US. I think I learned everything I know about sex from Frank Zappa records. <laughs> oh Lord. I don't want to ask the follow up question to that. I did learn uh, what the Jones Crusher was. That's for sure. Did he have something to do? Cause we, we talked a little bit about Beefheart. We talked a little bit about Alice Cooper. Uh, did he have something to do with, what was that guy's name? Wild Man. Wild Fisher. Man Fisher. Yes. Yeah. He produced him. He, cause there's a whole documentary about Wild Man Fisher too that I, I recommend. If you can find it, it's hard to find now. Um, but yeah, Frank, I don't know if Frank discovered him. I feel like the people from Rhino Records discovered, uh, Wild Man Fisher, but Frank definitely produced or released some of his records. And uh, there's a story about Wildman Fisher visiting the Zappa house and throwing something that came very close to, you know, Moon when she was an infant. And Frank realized that this guy was dangerous and we can't have him in the house anymore. And that sort of ended the, the relationship. And I think Frank, wasn't he also instrumental in the Shags record getting released? Uh, he did, wasn't involved in making it, but I think he heard it and uh, said it was the greatest, like, it's they're better than the Beatles or something. And then the Shags album was released. He gave that quote, and that quote seemed to be like the biggest promotion, you know, used to, to promote the Shags album. Mm, but right. I don't know. I don't know if there's any kind of official thing other than he, he gave that quote. I mean, I know I ragged on Zappa for making fun of uh, Timothy Carey back in the uh, World's Greatest Sinner uh, episode because him calling it the world's worst movie, I completely disagree. I still say it's one of the best movies ever made, and I love Frank's music in it. And uh, did that ever get like a real release, the World's Greatest Sinner music? Yeah, I was wondering that. You know, Frank has had so many lawsuits and... You know, he's always getting the rights back to something and then re-releasing things. And I was wondering, you know, he did these movie soundtracks that as far as I know, I've never seen releases of. 
I would, and I would think that those wouldn't be that hard for him to get the rights to in order to release them. So as far as I, I don't know if, if they ever came out or not, I've never, never come across them. In the movie, you see this little ad that Zappa took out. He it comes to studio Z and score your film complete package. So maybe that's Timothy Carey saw that ad and hired him to, to score his movie. It sure, sure seems that way. That and the other one that he scored some Western called run home slow. He also, uh, when he was in jail, when he got out of jail, you know, everything from that studio, all the, the tapes from that studio had been confiscated as evidence. He never got any of it back. So maybe, maybe those recordings were part of that. And that's why they've never been released. A few people know, but not a, people, not a lot of people know this, that in 1983, Zappa came up with this business model of basically Spotify. Listen, so a few people know about this, but there's this whole detailed proposal that he put out about uh, basically how people can pay a monthly subscription and get through the technology of 1983, high quality audio transmitted to their house via cable boxes or the telephone with some kind of chip. And it's amazing. It's this entire thing, which from today's perspective could have saved the music industry. It's just unbelievable that the, <laughs> apparently the technology for this existed in 83 and the person who thought about it was Frank Zappa. I, I can send you this piece of text that I found. found. Part of it is in Zappa's book. He says, music consumers like to consume music, not pieces of vinyl wrapped in pieces of cardboard. And uh, it's this whole thing about, about basically destroying the record industry by giving direct co- communication between music listeners and artists. And if only, if only, is all I can say about that. It's amazing. I can say that I don't agree with Zappa on everything. I like to collect records. <laughs> And I also disagree with his viewpoints on smoking and secondhand smoke. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. That's the thing. What was that? He he thinks that, that secondhand smoke, you know, that it's just something people made up to complain. I, I forget his exact wording, but he didn't think see it as a problem. It's like, I always hated secondhand smoke, and I'm really glad. You know, when the smoking ban came in here in Maryland and people complained, I was so happy and I for, I didn't realize how much I appreciated it until my bands would go to Pennsylvania to play shows where they didn't have the smoking ban. And I would spend the next couple of days just coughing up gook and being like, I'm so mm. glad I don't have to be in these smoky bars anymore. Right. And of course, the whole smoking thing is really the tragic downfall of Zappa because he obviously died of cancer. He smoked, you know, he had there's some quotes about this, you know, because he was anti-drug his entire life, but he smoked cigarettes all the time. And when he was asked about it, he said, there's two great quotes about, about cigarettes. He said, um, the thing you don't understand is for me, this is food. I live on these things and this black water and this mug that I, that I drink. Those are the things I live on. And the other thing he said was that, um, tobacco is my favorite vegetable. Like I said, I grew up with Zappa heads and I think there comes, there should come an age where we realize that you don't agree with Zappa on everything. And this is definitely a thing to disagree with Zappa on. And I think Zappa in his late last years dying of cancer would have agreed with this. You know what smokers, really serious smokers are like, they rationalize. So he was, he fell victim to that. I don't take drugs. Nicotine's a drug. Caffeine's a drug. Those drugs are legal. I think you mentioned that there's another documentary about Zappa out there. Is that right? There's one that came out a couple of years ago. It's called Eat That Question. It's uh, the name of a Zappa song or composition. And it's a doc, it's about 2015, I think, or 16, and it's all completely made up from Zappa interviews. So it's just Zappa narrating his story, sort of. 
And it's a pretty pretty good documentary. It's more because it's it's all through his words, so it's less critical, I guess, of him. You don't see any kind of outsider look at him, more of what Zappa wanted to tell the world kind of thing. Anything Zappa-related that I can find, I, I tend to check out. And so I've seen a lot of Zappa documentaries. <laughs> I can't remember which ones are which. But I know like on Amazon Prime, there's there's several that you can pick, and not all of them are worth watching. Looking at his uh, credits on IMDb, his self credits, there are a lot of appearances, and those are the you know official releases as opposed to like you know so many interviews that he did and has done over the years. So it's um, I, I can't even imagine trying to take all of those and put them together into something. Did you see him do a character on Ren and Stimpy? Was he the Pope? He was the Pope. I remember that from. Yeah, like more. I remember hearing about it than watching he it because like I just watched that. I just watched that documentary about Ren and Stimpy, and as I was watching it, I was like, "Wow, I haven't seen a lot of these later Ren and Stimpies, like the early ones, the first season, I guess it was." Yeah, I was all in for that, but then I was like, "Wow, I've never seen this before." Okay, <laughs> no, some of it went really wrong. Oh didn't yeah, it? have you guys seen that doc yet? Not the doc, but I've seen some of those great documentary uh i think it's just called happy happy joy joy it's warts and all i mean especially all the john k stuff yeah it's oh yeah all the all the underage underage girl stuff mm-hmm. and all that oh god mm-hmm. oh lord i'm glad they went there and i'm glad they actually had john k because the, the first i'd say 20 minutes he doesn't show up and i was like okay yeah he's not in this documentary and then boom he shows and it's like all right how far are we going to go with this and I mean, they probably didn't go all the way, but we definitely got a good taste of what a jerk he was. Slash is. Slash is, yeah. Yeah, you know, they, they, they're they rebooting Ren and Stimpy, and then they said, it's being rebooted, but rest assured, none of the money is going to go to John Kay. It's like, why are you even doing this? If you have to do that disclaimer, then just don't do it. Yeah, maybe make two other characters. It's pretty white. Well, so am I. What can I tell you? You've been working on your dancing, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been rehearsing it. Glad you noticed that. Yeah, it doesn't leave much time for your music. You should spend more time on it because the youth of America depends on you to show the way. Yeah? Yeah. Monkeys is the craziest people. Following Gail's death, uh, there seems to be sort of a rift between the Zappa children and there's sort of a rift between Ahmed and Diva and on one side and Moon and Dweezil on the other side. And I heard, I, I happened to hear, uh, both Moon, Moon Zappa on Mark Maron's podcast and Dweezil also on Maron's podcast. And especially Dweezil, the Dweezil interview was just heartbreaking because Dweezil Zappa is, at least for me, he's, he's such a likable guy. He's really likable. He's, and he's like the good son in a way. He's, of course, a very famous guitar hero and musician in his own right. But he mostly, I don't know if mostly, but he, you know, tours a lot and performs his dad's music with Zappa plays Zappa, a lot of the old musicians. And he's, you know, the guy who's most, who's most like the best, uh, entrusted steward of his dad's like legacy and stuff. And, uh, and he really seems like such a sweet guy and a guy who's really in it for the love of music. I heard him on Mark Maron's podcast just talking about how like petty stuff with his mom when she had dementia and towards the end of her life and like, like a certain guitar that uh, it's so sad to even bring this up. That's why I hesitated because it just breaks your heart, but a specific guitar that 
Frank wanted him to have, and finally Gail gave it to him, but without the case. I mean, it's it 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 just it it breaks your heart if you just listen to to him talking. I I thought I should mention it, but it's it's a it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. What can I say? I I hope I hope that that stuff all gets sorted out. That's all. Families are the worst. I've seen so many families get pulled apart by stuff, especially after somebody passes, and then it becomes this whole like he said, she said, they said kind of thing of like, you know, like families ripping themselves apart over material goods, but especially over material goods that had sentimental value. So it's like, I really wanted that, I don't know, uh, Hummel figurine or whatever. And then my sister got it. And and now I'm upset for the rest of my life and I'll harbor this grudge to them forever. It's, it's just garbage. You know, it's like, it's so awful that people go through this and they go through it all the time, which is so sad. I don't want to make light of the problems in the Zappa family, but can you imagine a reality show of Zappa family counseling getting to the bottom of whatever the, because, you know, I was reading the, you know, the, the, the problems between Dweezil and Ahmet as they were happening and they were releasing statements and stuff. I was reading those and just thinking they make it sound like it might just be a big misunderstanding, but who are we to know, you know, from the outside, we have no idea what's actually going on there, but I don't watch reality shows, but I would watch that because I'd love to know exactly what, what the problem is. Like if somebody's at fault, who is it and what's their deal? Uh, and, and then hopefully see it all get resolved. And maybe a last thing I wanted to say was that because we did focus on some of the darker aspects of Zappa's personality, Frank Zappa's personality. And in interviews, he wasn't like open and sentimental. In fact, I don't think you could find like a really sentimental or a mushy statement kind of coming out of his mouth ever, but he did put it in some of his songs and he has some personal songs where he talks about his childhood, uh, places, you know, places we grew up. He has a song about Sun Village in California and he has a song about, um, and this beautiful song, which closes the film, which is, uh, Watermelon and Easter Hay, which is just this gorgeous instrumental, which, just anybody who listens to it, it would break their heart, you know, and it's from Joe's Garage. It's, it's, it's this, it's the last song in the world or something like that. Uh, the last song that ca- it's counted in nine. I think I, I, I was always trying to figure out the counting of that song. I think while watching the credits, I was finally in my head able to figure out where one was. And I'm like, Oh, it's in nine, but it's also such a touching, just a touching melody, you know, that everybody, I think anybody who hears it, Flux at his heartstrings a little bit. So, and also Frank himself in the movie, even though not in his words, but at least for me in his demeanor and his, you can tell that there's like a lot of emotion hiding under there that doesn't come out. Uh, and I felt it. I felt some, I, I don't know how he did it, but I sort of felt a connection to this, to this guy who, you know, under all of this sarcasm and what have you, uh, there's a beating heart under there. And I did feel it, uh, like in the later part of the movie, not just when he's dying, by the way, but, just in the later part of his life, I, you, you, you could, I could sense it a little bit. I want to thank you guys so much for coming on and talking about Frank Zappa. So, Skiz, what are you up to in Charm City, sir? So I've been making all kinds of stuff while in this uh, sort of lockdown. Uh, but one of the, the probably the biggest project I'm working on is Sound Mechanic, the documentary that I told myself was only going to take two years to make. And so far, I've, I've got uh, I have six months left before I reach that deadline. And I think I can make it. I was pretty much at my first rough cut stage when my subject let me know that he's moving to New Zealand. So if I wanted to, sh- if I wanted to shoot any more with him, 
I should do it now. So I end up shooting many, many more hours of footage. And now I'm nowhere near that first rough cut stage that I was. <laughs> What's it about, Skiz? Uh, it's about an artist named Neil Feather, who uh one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He invents new instruments with found mechanical objects. And uh just a very interesting guy. His instruments are really cool. They, they look cool. They sound cool. Um, and he's married to... Uh, an artist from New Zealand. And so he splits his time between here and there. And at this point, I think he'd rather be there than here. So <laughs> understandably. And who can blame him? Yeah. He's basically moving to New Zealand, you know, not permanently, but who knows when he'll be back. So I took advantage of uh, some opportunities to shoot some more footage with him before he leaves. And I'm glad I did because it's better to have too much than not enough. Yanni, I remember from World War Z that you guys know how to handle a, a zombie problem over in Israel. How are you handling COVID? Fantastically. We're really ahead of the curve. We were the first country in the world to have a second lockdown. And look at now it's all over the place. France is doing it. Spain's doing it. So Israel is really, really amazing. I'm being very, very cynical. Israel's doing very badly, terribly. Um, and uh, my day to day is uh, all subtitles all the time. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I'm about to get upset from watching my TV. Checking out the news until my eyeballs fail to see I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess When's it gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess So I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that There's nowhere to delay that trouble coming every day Nowhere to delay that trouble coming every day They watch the riots and the busies on the street I watch them throwing rocks and stuff and choking in the heat I listen to reports about the whiskey passing round Seeing the smoke and fire and the market burning down Watch while everybody in the street would take a turn To stomp and smash and crash and bash and slash and burst and burn And I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that There's nowhere to delay that trouble coming
stopping cars in London just to stick it to the man. Cause we gotta go cold turkey, gotta give up all that gas. Addicted to the fossil fuels, but they ain't gonna last. And the scene is getting higher, like the scientists foretell. And them cats up in the boardroom should be going straight to hell. The corporate institutions, the whole bloody cartel. Except the Holy Church of England has still got them shares in shell. And they're cutting all the funding, cause they're stripping back the state. Privatized policing, advertising hate And they're selling us a ticket to something that don't exist And their cup that overflows is just filled up with hypocrites So I'm watching and I'm waiting, I'm hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that there's no If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.